The biggest hurdle between me and eating healthy, delicious meals for lunch is decision fatigue. Honestly, by the time lunchtime rolls around, I've already made like a thousand decisions from what my toddler should wear to how much I want to argue with her about how you have to brush your teeth in the morning, you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. No, I absolutely agree. And like I have taken to doing meal preps or like buying a bunch of ready to eat meals to like heat up quickly. And I recently tried Factor. And let me tell you, Factor is like 12,000 steps above and beyond any ready to meet eat meal I have ever tried before. That's right. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef curated, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. And there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started and get after your goals. I tried the two-minute meals where I could fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are. And they also offer pancakes, smoothies, and more. There's a wide variety of easy options throughout the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Plus, there's no prep and no mess. Factor meals are ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup required. Factor is also flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Factor is the perfect solution when you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. And you don't want to make any more decisions because you're exhausted, like me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash justbreakup50 and use code justbreakup50 to get 50% off. That's code justbreakup50 at factormeals.com slash justbreakup50 to get 50% off. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice we we, you don't want to hear. <laughs> I've said that like every day for the last four years and I fuck it up. <laughs> the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra DeMolder. And I'm Sam Blackwell. And this week on Head and Heartwork Conversations, we're talking to Leah Juliet, whose pronouns are they, them. Leah is a non-binary and queer writer, speaker, organizer, and advocate from Connecticut. They are the founder and executive director of March Against Revenge Porn, an international advocacy nonprofit. And they also recently founded a communication agency called Survivors Social Media that works with survivors to tell their stories boldly and without shame. They are also the author of the collection of poetry, Naked in Public. Leah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, I just a little bit of a cute background about how uh, you, you came to be on this show. Um, so this is <laughs> this is not obscure, but uh, so you have a tattoo of one of my poetry lines and it's one of my fucking favorite tattoos of of any of my poetry work on people's bodies. And what's crazy is you, you tagged me in a picture of this tattoo years ago. And I was like, and I think I reshared it in my stories or something like that. And I was like, that's so beautiful. I fucking love that. And then like separate of that, not even knowing that this is the same person, I started seeing you and your work in my social media feed, in the news reel, in, in like the news, um, just because of the amazing and really like groundbreaking representation that you're putting out into the world. And I was like, damn, this person seems really cool. Let me go check out their page. I went to your page, followed you and realized that we had already had this conversation years ago about your tattoo. So I just thought that was like just a charming little connection. And, and it speaks to how compelling your work is that I really, I was so drawn to it. Um, I don't know. I just thought that was cute. <laughs> the story actually goes much deeper than that because I, can't I, wait. <laughs> I, I've done spoken word for 
about six years now since I was 19 years old. And one of the first spoken word poets that I ever found on the internet was, was you, Sierra. And Aww. so I automatically became drawn to your poetry. I actually did one of your poems as a monologue in an acting class that I took oh, yeah, when I, I was in that. college. So I, I, I've always loved your work and I was just really excited when you reached out to me. So thank you so much for having me. Oh yeah. Me. Thank you. That's so, I love how connected the world can be. Um, okay. So I, I know that you've discussed this uh, like in many interviews and TED Talks and on many, many like global stages already. But can you tell our audience a little about what led you to um, start March Against Revenge Porn? Yeah, I was actually talking to my therapist about this the other day because they were saying something along the lines of the story that you tell, your own personal story that you tell almost sounds like the way that you tell it at this point, you've told it so many times that it almost sounds like a story that that happened to someone else. Mm, so I want to be wow. conscientious of recognizing that this is my own story, that this happened totally. to me. And so trying to figure out how to just not regurgitate it in the same totally. way that I've become accustomed to. But Essentially, um, I grew up in a very small town in Connecticut, the most ideologically conservative town in what is known to be a very liberal state. Um, but because of the, that ideological conservatism, um, unfortunately, it's a breeding ground for things like misogyny and patriarchy and rape culture. Um, and so I grew up at a public high school and was surrounded by all of that. And uh, when I was about 14, I started talking to a boy as you do in high school, um, just texting, messaging on Facebook. And he started asking me for nude pictures. And at the time I had never taken nude photos of myself. I was scared of doing so because I had heard so many, um, bad stories of girls who I knew who would get arrested for sending nude photos mm. of themselves. And I, I thought, I don't want to get in trouble. But at the same time, I wanted to impress this boy. I wanted to be viewed as beautiful and sexual and whatever you want to embody when you're 14 years old, hoping for acceptance. Yeah. And so eventually after about a year of kind of on and off again, talking to this boy and him asking me for photos um, and being really just pushy, I, I sent these photos. Um, I sent four pictures of my body, my naked body to him and made him promise that he would never share them with anyone. And when I asked him to not share them, he kind of laughed at me as if the idea mm. that he would share these photos was was crazy. Uh, and so I trusted him. Um, but around that same time, and you'll have to forgive me because the timeline of 10 years ago is a bit shaky, but around the same time I started to come out as being gay or at least as being interested in women and started to lose my attention from this boy that I was talking to because I realized right. that really it seemed that he only wanted me for my naked body in these photos. And once I sent him the photos, he wasn't really interested anymore. Um, so around that time I came out as gay and he got angry at me. He told me that he was going to ruin my life. And mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant at the time because I didn't know the vast network of global technology that is used to exploit and dehumanize people on the internet the way I know of it now. Mm. So he went on to post the photos of me on an international image board uh, that is used to categorize photos of predominantly women um, from anywhere from small towns to recognizing them by their country, by their high school, Mm -hmm. And categorically, essentially slut shame them, uh, comment on their bodies, name their bodies, find them on social media, and essentially slut shame them into non-existence. So that happened to me when I was about 14. Oh my God. Um, and for about five years, it kept me silent. It essentially blackmailed me into keeping myself very, very small because I didn't want to do anything that could ultimately uh, make him want to tell people that he had my photos or show people. Right. So these photos existed on this like international network of nude images, but my parents didn't know and my teachers didn't know. And I wanted to keep it that way because I was so terrified of anyone that respected me finding out. Um, so I stayed silent for about five years 
And it wasn't until I was 19 years old in my college dorm room around the same time when I found Sierra's poetry um, that I decided to speak up because I had learned that the man who shared my images when I was a teenager had been, uh, had been arrested for sexually assaulting a minor. Mm. So in that moment, I kind of saw the trajectory from the abuse that he had done to me not being held accountable to the abuse that he had gone on to do to other people. And I realized that that wasn't acceptable to me and that I wanted to take some sort of action to prohibit people from doing harm like that had been done to me to anyone again. So that's when I started sharing my story and when I founded March Against Revenge Porn. Wow. Wow. Um, I'm sorry that happened to you. Thank you for retelling it because I know the retelling itself is such a labor, you know, um, I am glad you're talking about it with your therapist, you know, and like revisiting it. Um, and, and also, um, that labor, that emotional and, and physical labor that you do to retell that story I know has like helped thousands and thousands of people. Um, so thanks. Thank you. So I know that you have, uh, this personal experience that, that you've gone through. Um, but I also know that you, you've done a lot of, um, sort of like research into the experiences of others, as well as the sort of broader context that we sit in when it comes to um, legal stuff around revenge porn on an international, national scale. I know that you wrote your your senior thesis about this, doing a lot of uh, research and analysis of the current and existing laws and, um, and also just like sort of cultural experiences. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that, right? Like what are some of the things that are in place uh, to protect victims of, of revenge porn? What could we be doing better? What What's sort of the, the history of this conversation? Would love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. Unfortunately, as you might imagine that um, a crime that is so vicious as revenge porn, at least in the way that I've described it, would be so heavily legislated to protect people. Um, but unfortunately, our legal system hasn't kept up with the um, the way the internet has grown in scale. Um, it's mm. just almost impossible for age-old systems and agencies to um, explode with knowledge as quickly as the internet has has grown and as vastly as it has showcased who we are, um, both inside and out. Um, so really, there isn't a federal legislation to criminalize revenge porn right now. Um, there was supposed to be um, uh, legislation through the Violence Against Women Act, the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act that happened earlier this year. There was supposed to be um, legislation within that legislation that would criminalize it, but it didn't end up passing. Um, so currently revenge porn is not federally criminalized. Um, and so it's a state by state basis. So depending on where you are will depend on what representation you have in the legal Mm. system. So in Connecticut, uh, there's a law called unlawful dissemination of an intimate image, a law that I actually helped to amend to make it more intersectional and, Mm. uh, not criminalize children who share their photos. Um, And in New York, there's different legislation. So you could literally cross state lines and have different legal representation. Um, Some laws in some states are problematic because they do criminalize children or they force uh, the victim to prove that the perpetrator harmed them. And Mm. it's very hard to prove harm because a perpetrator could easily say that wasn't my intention. My intention was X, Y, Z. So these laws are deeply problematic. And what I've done with March Against Revenge Porn is try to shed light on that. Um, We've protested in several different major cities to urge those cities to pass legislation. It worked in Brooklyn and New York City. They passed citywide legislation, which then went on to statewide legislation. And we've marched in other major cities. But what I've started to learn over the past few years that has kind of put the work of March Against Revenge Porn at a temporary halt Mm -hmm. until we determine the next path forward is that um, I think as a social justice activist, at least someone who's who's been raised to learn about the history of social justice movements, I'm also very passionate about 
abolition and about racial justice and about ensuring that no individual is wrongfully incarcerated and we end systems of mass incarceration. Right. So what I've learned through my work with March Against Revenge Porn, through talking to so many students at universities and at town hall meetings and things like that, is that I have to grapple with how does the work that I'm doing to criminalize revenge porn line up with my personal, moral, personally held beliefs that um, we should end incarceration. And for a long time, those two concepts butted heads. And I didn't really understand what my path forward was because it seemed antithetical to my morals. Um, So I'm actively figuring that out with the folks that I have working with me with March Against Revenge Porn. I'm writing about it a lot. I'm starting Mm -hmm. conversations about it. But for the time being, what I can say is that in order to truly undo the legacy of internet harm that revenge porn has perpetuated. We need to unlearn misogyny and patriarchy, violence, and harm from a very basic level. Mm. So Mm -hmm. it's not about incarcerating people right now. It's For me, it's more about targeting the root causes of why predominantly males in America, but really Mm -hmm. globally, uh, commit acts of harm against other people. I think the internet is an accessible way to harm people. And when negative emotions like guilt, shame, rejection, and sadness are not dealt with, and when we teach boys in America to channel those negative emotions into harm, to exercise those emotions, then Mm. we're going to see the internet be used as a tool to do that. So really, it's about teaching from a young age, as young as possible, how to get resources to mitigate that harm and not exercise that harm on other people, and then create resources to use the internet as a tool for good, as opposed to a tool for evil. And I think that is the way that we disassemble and dismantle revenge porn as a system of internet bodily harm. I know that that was a long answer, but I really think it it exists outside of the legal system. Leah, I watched a couple of your interviews in preparation to this, and and this is my favorite interview you've ever given. (laughs) So, like, I'm thrilled (laughs) that that we get this, like, most up-to-date. I mean, I just think, like, please go on. Like, be as long-winded as you want, because that was so poignant and powerful um, and actually leads me perfectly into my next question, which is like in my brief understanding, researching of revenge porn in life and in preparation for this interview, you know, it made me again, you know, like I think so many things in the patriarchy makes make us question our um, the edification that we get on things like sexuality and consent and um and in looking up um revenge porn uh in preparation for this it made me again confront what i have been culturally taught consent to be which is this assumed sort of blanket statement that you consent once and that consent is evergreen and that obviously there's the toxic argument that comes up a lot like especially in something like revenge porn but even just like slut shaming or you know any of it like well you sh- you shared those nudes you chose to do that once as though that equates to them consenting to them being seen or consenting to negative behavior or toxic behavior in the future, you know, can you just talk a little about, um, I guess the reframing of consent that is happening and should be? Yeah. So I think first of all, um, I like to bring this up in every conversation because I actively use the term revenge porn as a part of the work that I do, but it's an inherently problematic term. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no, it implies that, first of all, um, the act of harming an individual is an act of retribution or of revenge to imply that the victim did something wrong. And then it implies that the images are inherently pornographic and nudity is not inherently pornographic. Mm So I don't like the term revenge porn. I use it because that's what the media most accurately understands the topic to be. Right. Perfect. Perfectly explained. I use the term technology-based sexual abuse or tech-based sexual abuse. Some folks use the term image abuse. Um, And 
I think it's deeply important to note it to to note that it's completely described by technology or an image being used to abuse an individual beyond the purposes of what that image was in mm. originally intended for. So if I consented to taking an image on October 1st, 2012, um, that doesn't mean that on October 2nd, 2012, that you can use that image for whatever purposes that you want, because that image still belongs to me. And that mm. is not what I consented that image to be used for. Um, so I think as far as the terms of consent being expanded now, I think it's just that we have access to technology that can elongate a moment in which you consented to last yeah. much longer than it would have in a physical scenario. So yeah. if I'm having sex and I'm consenting to that act of sex, I don't often have to worry about what that will mean tomorrow because I won't necessarily be with that person again tomorrow. But if I'm taking an image, I have to worry about what that consent looks like over time. And I have to trust that the person who I give that image to will also have the same idea of what my consent looks like over time. And so they'll have to know and recognize that I'm not consenting to this image being used beyond XYZ purposes. And that can be whatever the case may be. If I upload the images to OnlyFans, it can still be an act of tech-based sexual abuse. Abuse If you go on and upload those images to Pornhub without right. my consent, it's right. completely um, integral and unique to the individual who takes the image or who has the image taken of them, what the purposes of that image is is in the long term. Um, and that consent, just like consent when it comes to physical sexual activity, can start and stop at any time. I can tell you, I actually don't feel comfortable anymore. Can you delete that photo off your phone? And you have to say yes, because it's my body and it's my uh, storyline of consent. So I think when we view consent more as a storyline and say, you know, there can be pivots, there can be uh, ends and beginnings, and and that's okay, and it's nuanced, and it's not black and white or cut and dry, um, then we can start to conceptualize consent more so as something that can be nuanced and uh, ended just as quickly as it can start, and it shouldn't be abused um, mm -hmm. because it is so much more complex than right. we often consider it. Yeah. All right, y'all know that Sam and I record every single episode of Just Break Up virtually. So I literally see this beautiful person on Zoom like multiple times a week. And every time Sam pops up into Zoom, I comment on their outfit. And I swear, like 99% of the time, I'm like, oh my God, that outfit is so cute. Where did you get it? Sam says quince. You too can upgrade your wardrobe with luxury essentials at unbeatable prices. Quince is here to transform the way you shop with a range of high quality items priced within reach. That's right. They have 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters for $50, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and timeless 14 karat gold jewelry. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middle person and passes that saving on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. Y'all have heard me talk about my leather bag that I use as both a laptop bag and a diaper bag. And I love it because <laughs> love it. <laughs> honestly, it looks really cute in every single circumstance that I use it. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash just break up for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E.com slash just break up to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash just break up. All right, head and heart workers, you know, I'm all about tackling our money shame 
and becoming fiscally empowered, regardless of how much money we make or how much debt we have. I think it's such a crucial step in our own self-acceptance and empowerment. That's why I love that today's episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. With Rocket Money, you can see all of your subscriptions in one place. And if you see something you don't want, you can just cancel it with a tap. You never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled unwanted subscriptions. And listen, we always talk to you about like conflict styles and open and honest communications, but honestly, save your energy and get Rocket Money to cancel those subscriptions for you. <laughs> Stop wasting yeah. you money. You don't need to practice that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to do head and heart work with like customer service representatives. You know what I mean? Like just like... Use the middle person. (laughs) Just get Rocket Money in there to help you do what you need to do. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. That's rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. Rocketmoney.com slash justbreakup. On some of your socials, like I've seen you say like, that you're sex positive. And I thought that that was such so important, such an important part of you to share too, because I think I'm sure you've come up against like a lot of like puritanical views on sexuality in your advocacy for this. Um, and I, I just think like, again, it's not that t- the taking of the nude is the issue, <laughs> you know, like, and I know that you have to like walk the line, especially in, oh my God, legislative work, trying to get people to care about an issue enough to advocate for it. You must have had to really negotiate that line. I mean, I guess, I guess maybe not, maybe no negotiation was, is, was required because of your morals or, or whatever. But like, I guess maybe, can you speak on that? Like, how can you be I know how you can be, but like, how did you navigate being pro-sex, not making sure people didn't feel shame about like the sexual acts that they were doing? Because again, like taking nudes is not a problem. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's definitely evolved over time. And I want to be clear that when I was 19 and I founded this organization and this movement, my beliefs weren't as fully fleshed out as they are now that I'm 25. Mm. So I've Mm -hmm. had some time and some life experiences that have allowed me to recognize myself as a sex positive person, but I didn't even know what sex positive meant when I was 19. In fact, fact, after I told my story to one of my law professors when I was in my undergraduate, she told me, um, you know, if you don't want an image of you plastered on a billboard, then you shouldn't share it. And I was like, that's good advice. And so I told someone (laughs) that advice on a podcast. Oh, no. (laughs) But here's the thing. At the time, at the time I... I think the world really had such a limited understanding of revenge porn and technology-based abuse and consent that that sounded like good advice. Yeah. Um, But it's not. Because at the end of the day, the fact is um, that nude images are not inherently pornographic. Nude images are not inherently wrong. Um, Right. Telling people in America or in the global population, but this is a uniquely American issue when it comes to harm and the way that it's legislated. So that's why I often bring up um, this issue as an American issue, but it really is a global issue when we think about it. Um, But putting, uh, asking folks not to send nude photos is putting a band-aid on a severed artery. And I, I use that comparison a lot because it's, 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 when we have young folks um, who have access to technology, who have access to a smartphone or a handheld device, telling them what not to do is yeah. a great way to have them do it, but then do it behind the back of yeah. someone who can help them when something goes wrong. So yeah. I don't think it's about telling people not to send nude photos. I think it's about 
educating individuals how to use their devices safely, how yeah. to explore their sexuality in a way that's healthy, that is consensual, and that's safe for them, especially if they're under the age of 18. But then saying, okay, I recognize as a parent or as a teacher or an adult that this is an epidemic that's happening and we can't necessarily uh, guarantee that this individual, this young person isn't going to take nude photos of themselves. So instead of saying, if you do this, you will get grounded for the rest of your life, we mm-hmm. should be saying, if you do this, here are the resources that you have. Here is what we're going to do as a family. Here is what we can do. You can sit down and tell me. The way that we criminalize acts of sex positivity in our homes Mm. is worse than we criminalize acts of harm legislatively. Mm -hmm. Because when kids especially, and I can speak from my experience having stayed silent about my abuse for five years, when kids feel as if they've done something wrong, um, they are less likely to come forward than if they don't see the harm in what they did. And so for me, taking a nude photo sounded so much worse Mm -hmm. than the boy who shared it. And I was convinced that I would be the one who would get in trouble. I would be the one who would go to prison um, because I had seen it happen in my small town. And so I think it's all about... Um, teaching children how to have the resources um, if they are victimized by both a technology-based or physical sex crime, what to do, Um, and also how to use those devices safely because I don't think it's about taking away technology from our kids. I actually founded a movement called Take Back the Net, which um, works to advocate uh, for young people on how to use devices safely, but also how to be sex positive um, yeah. and embrace their bodies. So I think it's it's so nuanced, but it's so much more than black and white, cut and dry. And so we need to start having these conversations. I'm not saying, you know, in order to be a part of my movement, you also have to be anti-incarceration or you also have to be sex positive. Rather, what I'm trying to say is in order to fully flesh out what this means for the future, we need to have the nuanced conversations of what it means right now. And that might be messy and that might be challenging and offensive to one person's beliefs and and encouraging to another, but it just means that we have to have these Mm -hmm. conversations because otherwise um, folks aren't going to come forward because they're going to see what happened to them as inherently their fault. Yeah. And you're right. It goes down to the root. It goes down to the root of sexism, the root of, of, uh, ant- anti-sex, you know, um, and also the patriarchy, the violence, the, the violence and ownership that we feel over other people's bodies and how we enact that. And, and it goes to families, you know, like you're right. I, I this is a silly little tangent, but on this path that I go running on, there's like a tagged up part of the, the pavement that says it's been covered up, but you can read it. It says like, Shelly sucks dick or something like that. Some name, you know what I mean? And I'm like, man, first of all, I'm sorry, Shelly, you know, that that happened. And if when my daughter can read one day and she sees that, I I was joking with my wife that, or but very seriously was like, I'm going to make sure to say like, well, it's okay that Shelly sucks dick. <laughs> like, it's okay that Shelly <laughs> yeah. has sex. It's not okay that somebody's writing this tag. You know, it's the conver- it's the at-home conversations about switching the narratives. And, you know, I'm 36, slut-shaming. Slut I remember slut-shaming happening when I was in second grade, and I know that's still happening now. But the conversation, mm-hmm. you know, like you said, sex positivity, knowing what that was when we were teenagers was not even on the radar, um, in the nineties and early two thousands. Um, and, uh, what was I, where was I going with that? (laughs) Um, just, you know, (laughs) trying to change our conversations about sex, um, to, to one that is about responsibility and respect and not Mm -hmm. about putting things away in this shame closet um, so that it comes out in these unsafe ways is what I'm saying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just think, I think you hit the nail on the head about what our culture looks like right now when saying that someone has sex with another person, specifically a woman has sex with someone. um, 
is inherently insulting that you would write Mm -hmm. it somewhere as an insulting phrase. It just shows how we uh, utilize sex as a form of... uh, like an insult. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so confusing. Like, I, and, and a requirement, of course, you know. Right. I think that there's like often like a couple different arguments around like how people who have experienced this type of violence should react to it, right? And like one of the narratives that I've seen come up a lot lately is like have no shame about it, right? Like there's nothing to be ashamed of, so like embrace it. Like you did nothing wrong, which I think is really great and kind of undermines the realities of. Yeah, it's not shameful, but like other people yeah. are gonna see it as shameful, right? And like, and, and that's gonna impact you in really negative ways, right? Um, so my my question for you is, what advice do you have for folks who may be experiencing this, right? Like, what are what are the advice that you have like in the moment, and then also how can folks think about healing from this process over over the long term? I'm so glad you asked that because that's something that I've been learning and figuring out for the past 10 years. I am coming up, I think this year is actually the 10 year mark since I was victimized by revenge porn. And it's also the one year mark since I was victimized by another sex crime. Um, So I've learned from my experience uh, navigating from victim to advocate, but then to victim again, Mm. what that looks like and how my shame evolves over time. I actually have a tattoo on my arm that's a gravestone that says RIP shame that I got around the time when I started telling my story uh, of revenge porn victimization. So I've really um, uh, gone from one end of the spectrum to another from believing that I was only my shame just completely wrapped in a bubble bubble wrap of shame, which constricted my lungs and made it hard to breathe constantly for years, to the other end of the spectrum, having no shame, saying, I'm going to say and do whatever the fuck I want to say and do. I'm going to tell my story. I don't care what people say, which then ended up getting me on some alt-right websites, uh, which allowed them to uh, make fun of my appearance, call me fat, call me um, uh, a feminazi, all of these crazy terms just for telling my story. Mm. To that now being where I am somewhere in the middle, which is I believe shame should be reclaimed. And so that's what led me to do my second TED Talk, which is called Reclaim Shame. And it's the recognition that there's really no way to abolish shame altogether. I mean, mm-hmm. if you figure it out, please let me know because I would love to know. Um, mm-hmm. But <laughs> saying I don't feel shame is like saying you don't feel anxiety. There are going to be moments when you feel these emotions because they're a healthy part of the human experience and shame is not inherently wrong. So it's about using that shame, which I see as like a light force energy because it um, – it radiates both in my solar plexus and in my stomach. I can actively feel this burning mm. bit of shame so often. Um, but using that energy collectively and using it to push you forward. For mm. me, I envision that pushing me across the bridge in the first March Against Revenge porn that I hosted across the Brooklyn Bridge. That was not an energy of empowerment. That was an energy of reclamation. That was an energy that said, I know that you did this thing to me, but I refuse to let the shame that I have be used as anything other than a force for good. So it's about navigating and leveraging what is often viewed as a negative emotion and taking it, molding it, and recycling it into something that can be powerful for you. Because so long as it's living in our chests and in our stomachs and just eating us alive and preventing us from sleeping or eating or drinking, then it becomes debilitating. But when we use it to write or when we use it to speak or when we use it to advocate, it becomes a tool. And so I view reclaimed shame as the strongest, most powerful weapon that we have because it can literally recycle something bad and make it Mm. into something good. Um, Mm. So that's how I've leveraged shame. But when it comes to healing, 
I think that shame reclamation is a big part of it. I also think that telling your story is just really life-changing, life-saving, and life-affirming, at least it has been for me. But before Mm -hmm. I say that, I want to recognize that not everyone is in a safe place to tell their story, um, and they could face really harmful repercussions from doing so. So I think it's all about determining if you're in a safe place. And for me, that took five years. I was completely not no longer living with my family and I felt safe and my perpetrator was behind bars and I I felt like I could do it safely. Um, And through writing and through speaking, I started to, to slowly unravel what had happened to me. And although I've told my story hundreds of times at this point, there are still moments in therapy that I am saying, oh, I never said that before. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm writing an op-ed and I read it to my dad and my dad says, oh, I never knew this part of your story. And I'm learning that I am retelling and re-remembering things Mm -hmm. every day. Because Mm -hmm. as someone who lives with PTSD and with... um, chronic depression and other mental health issues, my body has literally built a fortress around itself and around my memory to keep me alive because this could have killed me because of the power of shame. So to uh, circle back and to to make everything make sense of itself, um, shame can literally kill you and it has. We've seen the suicide rates of folks who have been victimized by revenge porn. We've seen how the media constructs narratives that only Mm. prioritize the stories of people who have literally died at the hands of this, but not survived. Right. Um, So it's about telling your story in a way that that, that, that's powerful and that can be a source of life for someone else who's living through it. Um, and that's what I've tried to do. I, I feel that there's really no reason to continue telling my story for my own sake. It's about hoping to reach someone who's living through the same thing and realizing that they're not alone. Wow. Um, one more question on this, and then we're going to change topics just a little bit. Um, I am curious about any suggestions you have for folks who have some similar trauma on any and on any end of this spectrum about, you know, where they feel like their boundaries were overstepped or their accept or their bodies were disrespected or, or, or whatever. Like, do you have any, like, I know you are in a relationship right now. Um, do you have any advice for interpersonal rebuilding of intimacy and trust? Like, um, not, well, caveat, like I, I don't think it just because something traumatic happens to us that our trust and intimacy or ability to be vulnerable with another person is automatically taken away. Like, I think that's like a a victim narrative that we tell people. And also we know that when we are hurt by the world, we become more suspicious of it. And it's, it's harder to show that like soft underbelly of ourselves. So c- can you speak to any of that? Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot about my victimization at the hands of sexual violence that has woven itself into my romantic relationships that I haven't necessarily realized Mm. until more recently. Reflecting back, I can see, oh, you know, this is a common thread that is why I allowed this person to treat me that way. This is my anxious attachment that was as a result of being abused as a young teenager that is manifesting itself in this relationship. Um, And it takes a lot of uh, both self-awareness and the willingness to sit with hard negative emotions and to feel them. But that isn't fun and it's not comfortable, but I think Mm -hmm. it's necessary, especially when you start to realize that hard emotions like anxiety are becoming ever present in relationships that are otherwise healthy and make you feel safe because Mm. it doesn't really make sense for that to happen. So maybe it's um, your inner child or your childhood self, your younger self, as I often say, um, feeling anxious because you felt safe before you were victimized. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would recommend 
sitting with a therapist uh, often <laughs> if you can and mm-hmm. working through this. I'm, I go to mm-hmm. therapy every week. I think it's completely mm-hmm. necessary and I wouldn't be able to have a healthy relationship now if I didn't continuously work through the things that I experienced 10 years ago, one year ago, yesterday. It's completely yeah. necessary. But I also think it's about finding a partner who recognizes and hears your story for all that it is and doesn't think that it makes you any bigger or any smaller than the person that you are. I've been with people who have saw all the work that I've done and who've Googled me and watched my stuff and then who, you know, think of me as some like grand activist or something. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I can Mm -hmm. only show up as myself and as a person. Mm -hmm. And I've also worked with uh, worked with people. I've also dated people <laughs> who, uh, who've um, seen my experiences and who've seen it make me very small. I can only show up every single day as the person that I am um, with the support of my partner, um, with them just completely knowing, respecting, and accepting my story. And so we kind of have to put it all out on the table in a way, but we don't have to make everything on the table reflective of everything that I am because there's so much more right. to that. Oh, I love that. I love so that. I think that that's really important. And that's I feel like I am now in the healthiest relationship that I've ever been in uh, for a variety of reasons. And I think that all of those factors are integral to ensuring that that relationship is as healthy as it is. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for talking about this big body of work that you have done. Um, I really appreciate you sharing your story um, and being really open to the idea that that other people have stories too that may look similar or different to yours. Um, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, but we do also want to talk about some of the other work that you've been doing or the other stories that you've been telling uh, about yourself as well. Um, so we know that for the, like the past couple of years, you've been um, involved in the Miss America pageants. Um, so you've been representing Miss Greater Rockville and the Miss America organization. Um, and you're sort of the, you're the first non-binary person to um, be a title holder into place in the top five. Um, and I'm curious about your experience in the organization and what led you to do it. But I would also love to hear, you know, as we think about how deeply gendered our world is. Um, There's this sort of expectation around non-binary folks that folks practice a lot of androgyny in their gender expression. Um, And so I'm curious about what is it like for you, not only as a non-binary person to participate in this, but also as a non-binary person who also presents very femme as well. Like, what is that, what is that experience like for you? And how is that, how are you grappling with that, moving through that, understanding that about yourself? Thank you for asking. Um, I started in the Miss America organization when I was about 14. So about the same age that I was when my nude photos first got posted. And I really wanted to be a part of this organization because in the small town that I was from, pageants were really fun and exciting thing that everyone from the town came to watch. And it was also a really great opportunity to win scholarship money. So mm-hmm. something that you might not know about the Miss America organization is that all of the money that you win from placing or winning a title goes to a scholarship fund. And so I've won a lot of scholarship throughout my time in the Miss America organization that has helped pay off student loans and things like that, mm-hmm. or pay for college, um, admissions and and things. So it's inherently an organization that's rooted in education, which I think uh, oftentimes gets overlooked when we think about the ways in which femininity are at play. Um, But I competed and won a title when I was around 13, 14. And um, I did the Miss Connecticut competition that year and I loved it. And I was so excited to go back. meet more people, have more friendships. Um, But it was then that my nude photos were leaked. And I realized this will blackmail me. Mm. People will find out and I will be probably kicked out of the program. um, Because they, although they were so embracing of, of young people, specifically young women. Um, they were also more conservative at the time as far as how you could present yourself and being professional. Um, so I 
distanced myself from the organization. I stepped down and I no longer was a part of it. It wasn't until 2020. um, I moved back to Connecticut after working in the United States Senate as a writer. And I moved back to Connecticut and I was really just looking for something to, uh, to occupy my time, a hobby. And I saw that the uh, Miss Greater Rockville competition was coming up within like two weeks. And so I was like, I'm just going to do it. I may have tattoos <laughs> on 90% of my body. I may be plus size. I may be non-binary, but I'm going to do it. Sure. And I did it I like and it. I won. It was incredible. And then I went to Miss Connecticut that year and I placed in the top five. And then last year I went back and I was first runner up. Um, so I have learned so much about myself through this process, which is first of all, non-binary people do not owe anyone androgyny. Um, Mm. I, when I first came out as non-binary, I cut my hair really short. I actually was bald for probably about three years. I wore a chest binder. I shopped in the men's clothing section. I just really leaned into that androgyny because I thought that that was the only way that I would be read as non-binary in public. Um, but over the years I've kind of shed that belief and now Mm. I just dress the way I want to. Some days I wear a full face of makeup. Some days I wear a dress. Some days I don't. And I'm just me, but I, I definitely lean more into femininity. Um, but as far as the Miss America organization, I have been able to not only win scholarship dollars that have helped me pursue higher education, but I've also been able to tell my story on a national platform. Um, My dream is to be on the Miss America stage as the first non-binary person, as the most visibly tattooed person, because... Um, this is, these are national telecasts of events that traditionally people watch because they want to see swimsuit bodies or because they want to see beautiful faces. But the women who compete in this organization, from what I've learned, all are passionate about incredibly important subjects and deeply educated. Mm. Um, and so it's so important for me to showcase that that, um, brand of person doesn't look a specific way that you can be passionate and intelligent and educated and driven, but you don't have to look like a cookie cutter image of what that means to American society. So that's what I've tried to do. Um, The cutoff age for competing is 26 and I'll be 26 this year. So I'm trying Mm -hmm. to determine if I have one year left in me to really do for my younger self what I so desperately Mm. wanted, which was to be seen on that stage as a queer person. Um, I'm deciding if that's in the cards for me this year, but it has changed my life in such a positive way. Mm. And I've really gotten to be a source of representation for a lot of people, which is such an honor to me. I just have to say your photos, the photos of you for last pageant what they were incredible they gave me chills <laughs> you looked phenomenal and powerful and i you're just right like the representation like literally stopped me in the tracks my tracks you know and i fucking love all your tattoos on a superficial level <laughs> i'm like a le- i'm just like on a more personal level like i love your tattoo style um and but that you you have at least accomplished what you set out to do is that like that is one of the ways in which I found you, like I said at the beginning of this show, um, just the coverage about you being the first non-binary person to be a title holder um, in the top five. It just, uh, you're, it's so powerful. And the, and you look powerful too. Like this is the, the least professional part of this interview, but you just look so <laughs> powerful. So whatever you were doing and whatever direction the photographer was giving you was totally fucking working. So... <laughs> <laughs> I just, I try to show up, I try to show up as often as I can on any and all stages, uh, just honoring my younger self because I really feel like, I really feel like my childhood, my adolescence was cut short because of the trauma that I was experiencing. So I just try to like do things that my younger self would like, um, because it kind of just makes my inner child feel warm and happy and empowered. And so I love that. Uh, And also like, just since we're talking about pageantry, like your outfits were perfect. <laughs> like the, <laughs> like the dresses you wore were just so 
they were powerful in them in of themselves you know like um anyway i just was such a big fan <laughs> no they uh, all have meanings they all have meanings i um i purposely throughout the entire competition last year wore the colors of the trans flag um so blue <sighs> pink and white throughout my wardrobe um and then my talent I did a spoken word poem that was about suicide prevention. So I really tried to make everything as meaningful as possible. Yeah, Yeah, it was was such a fun experience. I know you've got a lot on your plate, um, but I would love to see you put yourself on that stage again. Obviously, do it as as you see fit in your life. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I want to. I would just. I'd love to see you for what you bring to the table, what you, the conversations you start, the coverage that you'll inevitably get, and also for the dresses <laughs> because all of it, the styling, of, it was just so fucking badass. Um, Thank you. Anyway, yeah, of course. Uh, so we have three final questions that we ask everyone that we interview. So. First of all, the what is one piece of dating advice that you used to believe that you no longer subscribe to? I used to believe that I had to make myself small and palatable in order to be understood by the people who I loved mm. and that I would always bring more love to the table than I would inevitably get in return. Mm. And that was soul crushing for a very long time. Um, But what I learned is that there are people who will see you in both your glamorous post-pageant glow, uh, (laughs) but will also see you in the messy, heartbroken, everyday, nuanced way that you show up. Uh, Maybe without your teeth being brushed or Mm -hmm. uh, maybe having experienced some form of personal anxiety, heartache, panic attack, all of the things that I experience every day. I I went into my relationship that I'm in now when I first started dating my partner, thinking that I had to make myself beautiful and polished and presentable in both mental and physical ways. Mm. And it didn't work at the time because I wasn't showing up authentically as myself. And then mm-hmm. when my partner and I reconnected, really, I had no reason to believe that we would date again. So I just showed up completely as who I am, messy <laughs> and traumatized from my life. And my partner accepted me. And I realized that I don't have to have this, this fortress around my heart and around myself. And I can just be uniquely who I am. And what I've learned is that not everyone will be able to accept that. Mm-hmm. And it's about finding the people who do. Mm-hmm. Um, because if anyone that you love ever makes you feel small, um, then you're just, they don't have big enough hands to hold all of that you can bring. So find mm-hmm. someone who does, um, because I promise that they're out there and mm-hmm. just consistently show up in all that you are. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. I love I that. Love that. I know. Uh, okay. And uh, every episode we shout out a blind date of something that we love, something we want to set our listeners up with. And this week you're going to send them home with? Our great national parks. <laughs> which is, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's a documentary on Netflix about national parks and it's narrated by Barack Obama. A plus um, recommendation. It's phenomenal. Please watch it. Please watch it with your partner or your friend or your parent or whomever on like a big screen because the footage of the animals and the wildlife and the nature is so stunning. You will thank me later. Oh my God. Per- <laughs> it's totally on brand too. We either yeah. like, we recommend something like, you know, relationship oriented, like once every seven weeks. <laughs> and then in between there, it's obscure books about cults. It's TV shows <laughs> yes. that I love. It's documentaries about babies. Like we're all over the board. Yeah. So this is perfect. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so where can people find you and how can they support you? Social media, Venmo, website, whatever it is, uh, people want to, to be able to, to give you love. 
Sure. Um, so if you're interested in contacting me, booking me, reaching out to me in any way, you could follow me on social media at Leah Juliet, L-E-A-H-J-U-L-I-E-T-T. And then you could check out some of my work through March Against Revenge Porn, which is marchagainstrevengeporn.org or uh, Survivor Social Media, which is survivorsocial.com. And um, you can buy my book at leahjuliet.com slash naked dash in dash public. Um, or it's available on Barnes and Noble or any online ordering. Um, I really appreciate your support. Yes. Fantastic. Leah, thank you so much. This conversation was phenomenal. I'm just, I'm like buzzing from it. Um, I'm just so grateful. I can't wait to share you with our audiences. And honestly, I can't wait to see what you do next in whatever realm of the world that is. Um, because, uh, I just think, you've got something special. Um, and I can't wait to see what you bring to the world next. Um, so, uh, to our listeners, make sure to buy Leah's book, follow them on social, check out their work online. Um, if you need resources, um, check out all of their Ted talks, etc. Um, and if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure to stay tuned for more head and heart work conversations on our primary feed every other Thursday. And if all else fails, Just break up.